through. We all well? Ooh. Oh dear. Hopefully you feel better by the end of it. That's right. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. Do you want to turn to Luke chapter 20? Where's my thing? Uh, Luke chapter 20, you may have noticed we jiggled the order a little bit because David was preaching from chapter 21 last week. It's just for different scheduling reasons we moved it about. This is our last Sunday in Luke. We've been spending, in total, two and a half years so far in Luke. Go us. Um, We're putting Luke on pause for now, and we're going to return to Luke in the new year because then as we work our way through the remaining passages of Luke, it coincides perfectly with the death and resurrection of Jesus next Easter so we're going to do all that then. Um, in the meantime, we've got some other series lined up for you, some exciting stuff. Um, and starting next week, we're going to start a new mini-series on the Holy Spirit. And Martin Segal from City Church will be coming and launching that series for us. So Tom, you'll have to come back. So just look goody, goody two-shoes. Um, today, Luke chapter 20 is a little portion just at the end of that chapter. There's two little chunks of three verses. We're going to start from verse 41 in just a minute. And um, Jesus here, he's talking about honour in the church. Who should receive the greater honour? He's pointing out the problem of who's currently receiving the wrong kind of honour within his people at the time in Jerusalem. Now, honour in the church, where or to whom does prestige, greater honour go? Lots of churches get that right, and I trust we do, but we need to keep our eyes open for blind spots, hence I'm preaching on it today. Um, yeah, most churches, thankfully, are pretty honourable in their conduct and appropriate honouring of God as the owner of the church, the head of the church, the rector of the church, the source of the church. Other churches, sometimes less so, unfortunately. Sometimes not just what they might say otherwise, but they practice differently. Particularly leaders. There are unfortunate stories across the global church, not just in the UK, of things that go wrong. The organisation that is the church, if you like, is made up of people. And the wonderful thing about church is it's made up of people. But sometimes the downside of church is it's made up of people. <laughs> we're all fragile and we're all broken, and sometimes people use that to their advantage. We do hear stories sometimes about the church where the church gets it awfully, horribly, horrendously, sinfully wrong. And some of those stories are quite disappointing. Some of them pretty heartbreaking, aren't they? They're sometimes angering, and rightly, rightly so. There is absolutely no place for the kind of things we sometimes hear about occurring in Jesus' church whether that's financial abuse, sexual abuse, manipulation, coercion, power plays, that kind of stuff. It does happen. Leadership sometimes goes to people's heads, doesn't it? Really sad, really sad. Um, That all needs to be dealt with and spoken out against uh, actions um, for the sake of the church's purity and Jesus' glory. That needs dealing with. And we we do things here where we, we try and operate a policy of transparency and open conversation and people know where they need to go if they've got any concerns and so on. We want to keep running into that for the sake of the church's purity and Jesus' glory. And Jesus himself has much to say about this kind of subject, which is what he's going to talk about today in a kind of a roundabout way. He does this today by reorienting his listeners at the time who were around him. Um, Firstly, the first few um, verses, the first little portion, he redirects people's gaze to where it should be, ultimately him, God himself. But then secondly, in the next, the final few verses, He then still raises awareness of the rot that still remains amongst them and needs dealing with. So we're going to read from verse 41. And just to help explain the the full context, it says in verse 41, but he said to them, Jesus said to them, who is them? Jesus is talking to 
There's mainly the scribes today, uh, but there's also the Sadducees. There's all these different types of religious leaders um, of his time. And Jesus, right in this moment, he's in the temple. And he's surrounded by it. There's the chief priests and the Sadducees. I'll explain some of this in a minute. The scribes, the elders, they've all been taking it in turns to snipe at Jesus. You know in like martial arts films where you've got the goody and all the baddies, and all the baddies weirdly seem to take it in turns one, one at a time to come and have a go and get beaten up. They'd, if they attacked him all at the same time, the goody would lose. But they all like queue up. That's what these guys seem to be doing. They're taking it in turns to snipe at Jesus with like theological conundrums. Well, the scripture said this, what do you say about that? These little puzzles they're throwing at him. And he evades them brilliantly, the way he deals with them. But they're all taking it in turns. There's all these different religious leaders. There's the chief priests. They are the chief priests of the temple. There are the elders, the elders of the community. There are also, there's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. Who are these people? The Pharisees, um, they were the religious leaders of the common people. They were like the, the, um, the religious leaders of the working class, effectively. They were for the common folk. They were popular among the poorer portion of society. They focused on the synagogues that were spread across the nation as places of worship. They were the religious leaders of the working class. But conversely, at the other end of the scale, you've got the Sadducees. And they were the religious leaders of the upper class. Quite elitist, they're aristocratic, they're political, they're popular amongst the rich and powerful, very rich people themselves as well. And they, instead of focusing on the different synagogues around the, around the nation for worship, they were solely focused on the temple, the main temple in Jerusalem as the place of where worship should be conducted. Um, so they were the upper class aristocratic religious leaders. But in between, you've got these scribes. They're like the middle class religious leaders. They're lawyers. Um, they're very careful with the finer details of Scripture, and throughout history, they've been responsible um, for making copies of the Jewish Scriptures. That was their job. And throughout the Old Testament, um, what we would call the Old Testament, the Jewish Scriptures, they were responsible for the ones they had at the time for transcribing and making copies of them. Um, and as a result of doing that, because they were the experts in transcribing them and copying them, they became the experts of the law itself. They became teachers of the law. So Ezra, has got his own book in the Old Testament, he was a scribe. He was a teacher of the law. These ones, by now, they've become so adept at getting caught up in the letter of the law that they've tied themselves up in knots in such a way that they've turned it into a power play for their own benefit, using it to their advantage. So here today, Jesus, when he, says, he said to them, he's talking to the scribes particularly and also the Sadducees he's been having a go as well. Um, and he's just answered them so brilliantly and forthrightly they try to catch him out in this puzzle about the future resurrection. And he deals with it in such, such a, a beautiful way, and he just kind of sidesteps it, but deals with what needs to be dealt with head on. And it says in the previous verse, verse 40, it says, by the time he's, uh, the time he's finished, some of the scribes go, Teacher, you've spoken so well, and they no longer dare to ask him any question. <laughs> I love that. He shuts them up. He shut them up, but now, immediately, he's going to put them even more pointedly in their place by talking about, instead about their, t- their taste for... Um, posing puzzles, their taste for puzzles, trying to catch him out, they realise that's not going to work. Instead, he gets underneath that. Instead, underneath their taste for puzzles, actually, is their taste for power. They're trying to put Jesus in his place, but instead, he puts them in their place. So let's have a little read. From verse 41, just to the end of the chapter, says this. He, Jesus, said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David, this is King David himself, says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? 
I'll talk about that in a minute. And he continues, And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes, who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. You see, these two little chunks of three verses each, and what Jesus is doing, firstly, he's talking to the scribes in earshot of everyone else, and he's pointing out his true status as the one who should receive the greater honour. He's directing their gaze ultimately to God himself. But then in the next little batch of three verses, he then turns to everyone else, to his, including his disciples, but this time in earshot of the scribes, so they can hear every word he's saying, and he talks about the scribes. He's talking about his true status, and then he talks about the scribes' false status, making sure they can hear every word he's saying. And he's, what he's doing is casting a side-eye glance at what's still wrong. Here's where you should be looking, but let's not ignore this. This needs dealing, out, dealing with and weeding out. So we're going to look at these two little portions separately. Uh, we're going to look at the true status of God himself, Jesus himself, and then we'll look at the false status of the scribes and the rot that still needs dealing with. Firstly, Jesus' true status. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus is a big question, even today. still asked. It's asked today. It's answered by not just by those of us who, who do know him, but by many people who don't, many people who make assumptions about him and think they know better and so on. Um, but there was a brilliant report came out last year called Talking Jesus. I don't know if anyone's familiar with this. Um, it was organized by um, the Alpha Organization and Evangelical Alliance and, and other organizations. And together they did this big national survey of the, just the general public, who is Jesus? Different questions about Jesus and people's perceptions of the church and so on. And it was fascinating. It turned out that a fifth, 20%, one in five of the UK population do think Jesus was God in human form. It's a lot, lot higher than I'd have imagined. But out of the remaining numbers... A quarter believed he was just a normal human being, and how many was it? A third believed he was a prophet, kind of somewhere in between, kind of an extra special human, but not quite God. But half of the um, UK population questioned Jesus' actual historical existence, but even a sixth don't even know where to start in describing him in terms of personal attributes, character, and so on. They don't even know where to start, which... Helps us know that you know, those of us who are believers who know Jesus, if a half of people don't even believe his historical existence and a sixth don't even know how to start describing him, that helps us in our conversations to know we need to be talking about his historicity. We need to be talking about the overwhelming evidence, his genuine overwhelming grounding in history. He was a real person who walked this planet, who did these things, and what he did and said you need to consider is real. But we also need to be talking about his love and his mercy and his generosity and his heart for justice. Describe him. Describe his beauty, his majesty, his kingship and so on. It helps us. But in many other ways, this is also still encouraging because it does mean that half of the UK population believe he did exist. That's helpful. But also, like I mentioned earlier, up to one in five of your friends, your family, your co-workers may well quietly acknowledge Jesus' divinity. They just don't know what to do with that or they're uneasy of the implications. I find that really encouraging. Get talking. Get talking. 
But here, who is Jesus is a question. That was a mystery, even being worked out aloud by people of the time then as well, for very obvious reasons, because of what Jesus was saying, because of what Jesus was doing, because of what um, people were saying about Jesus, what Jesus was saying about himself. Um, And so these religious leaders were feeling threatened. There's something here we don't like, and we've got to get this guy out of the picture, or we're going to lose our position and our status. But Jesus, what he does, he proposes this cryptic conundrum. They've been throwing puzzles at him. He goes, like, here's one for you then. And he's talking about himself in the third person to test the waters, and he quotes this psalm. And King David, and basically Jesus is saying, saying to them, how can King David, a thousand years beforehand, how can he be talking about his Lord in the present tense, but referring to his past, the Lord said to my Lord, and yet we all accept, we, his audience, we all accept that he's referring to one of his descendants. <laughs> As in, a thousand years ago, David referenced his, Messiah, his God's historical existence, even though he hadn't been born yet. Brain's starting to melt. He poses this to them. It's like, work that one out. How do you explain that? Here's a conundrum for you. What are you going to do with it? Now, like I say, to be fair, they have been doing the same to him. They've been throwing puzzles at him here, there, and everywhere. What about this? And what about that? Trying to catch him out. Um, people do that all the time. W.C. Fields, um, famous comedian from the 20s and 30s theatre and then silent movies into Hollywood and all that, um, he was not a believer. But on his deathbed, a friend came to visit him and he caught him reading the Bible. So his friend said to him, Bill, not like you. What are you doing? And he went, looking for loopholes, my friend, looking for loopholes. Now, it's amusing, but actually really sad, isn't it? People look for wriggle room in the Bible. Look, people look for reasons not to believe it, and so on. Um, these scribes and these Sadducees and so on, they've constantly, for fear of losing their position, their influence, their comfortable lives, and so on, they've been furiously hunting for loopholes that work in their favour. But time and time again, it turns out that Jesus is really good at... Um, uh, unraveling their knotty puzzles and avoiding their traps. And so he's just responding with one of his own, just to help prove his point. But why does Jesus suddenly come out with this particular one? What's he doing here? What, is it, how, what does it serve? Now, like I say, we, remember, we, have to be, we have to remember he's talking to men who are set in their ways because this corrupted system of belief now that they've helped shape gives them prestige and status. And he's quoting Psalm 110. It's the first verse of Psalm 110, which they would all know very well. These scribes have been making copies of it over and over again. That's what they do. And this particular psalm, it shouts aloud about the Messiah's everlasting might and rule and priesthood. If you read read the rest of the psalm, it's clearly pointing out that the Messiah is not just some important bloke who's going to turn up one day, not some important human being, but he's more than that. Turns out he's God himself becoming the divine rescuer that they and we all need. So Jesus is just trying to point out to them, not trying to show them some contradiction in Jewish scripture. They go, oh, one less reason to believe, doesn't make sense, that kind of thing. He's not doing that. Rather, he's just trying to point out that these two wildly different truths, that the Messiah exists in the past but also hadn't been born yet, (laughs) that these can both be absolutely true when you accept that we're talking about an eternal divine being who would appear in the flesh. And then it makes perfect sense. It does make sense, but it depends on your framework for your thinking, for your belief. 
Many people, I know, I've, I've talked to people all the time, many people pose, suppose contradictions in the Bible. But actually, they're not contradictions. Um, invariably, they often just prove to be two things that can be simultaneously true. For example, yes, God can be sovereign over all things, and he can alter our days, but also we have free will to choose his way or not. Those two seemingly wildly different things do make perfect sense. Um, they work perfectly hand in hand when we accept that he exists and operates outside of time. But if you don't believe that's who he is, then it's going to sound like nonsense. I get that. Who do you say he is? And Jesus here, he's just simply using the, the scriptures that they had at the time, that the, the ones that the, the scribes themselves have been turning to their personal advantage. And he's using it just to show that anyone who is willing to consider it's possible that he is eternal God. And therefore, that he's also actually the author of these very scriptures themselves in the first place. The actual author is right in front of them. They're talking to the author of these scriptures. They're trying to twist to their advantage. It's nuts. Ed, Ed Solomon is a, a very famous Hollywood scriptwriter. He wrote Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. I don't know if you've got any Bill and Ted fans in the house. Wrote the old 20-year-old um, Charlie's Angels films with um, Cameron Diaz and all that. And he was in a cafe writing. He tells this story himself. He was in a cafe writing once. And the people on the table next to him, they were disagreeing about the origins of Men in Black, which is a big Will Smith sci-fi comedy from the 90s. And they were arguing about how that story and that script and that film came about. And he just leant over and goes, um, I'm sorry, um, uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I might be able to help clear this up for you. And one of them literally turned around to him and goes, we don't want a white old man mansplaining to us. And he goes, okay, I'll leave you to it then, and got on with it. He wrote Men in Black. <laughs> the author was right in front of them, and it's the same here. These scribes and these Sadducees and that, they've been lording it about, they've been throwing snippets of God-breathed scripture at Jesus as if they're the leading authority, when all along, he is. He's the author of it all in the first place, and he's right under their noses. But it's interesting, Jesus doesn't actually answer this question. He just lets it float. And none of his listeners at the time answer it. It's just left floating. It's just left hanging there, this big sign, what do you say? What do you say? And Jesus... Jesus doesn't need to answer it at the time. He doesn't need validation. He doesn't need vindication. As the ruler and the creator and the sustainer of all things and the divine rescuer of the lost, he doesn't need anyone to validate him. He knows who he is. A man's acclamation isn't something he needs. It's something he deserves because of who he is, but it's not something he needs to feel better. Any glory he rightfully receives from us is not because we need to do it to make him feel better. Any glory he rightfully receives simply needs to be just because of who he is. Look at him. Look at him. So the more we recognize and accept the truth of the matter that he is the almighty, everlasting, all-powerful, never-began, never glorious king of kings who stepped into our mess as a baby to grow up into the perfect God-man who would take our place and, and, and pay for our self-created brokenness, but then rise again in glorious new life that we might get the same. That's my Jesus, and that makes my heart sing. That makes me give him glory, not because he, he makes him feel better, just because that, that's Jesus. He needs that glory, and he needs that praise. 
But these Sadducees, these scribes, the Pharisees, a lot of them, they've all got too big for their boots. And Jesus is just very carefully, very quietly just putting them in their place. He's simply spelling out for them and for us the ultimate prestige that he owns. He's not only the expected Messiah, he's also he's the eternal one, someone to whom every knee must bow. Every knee. And one day, every knee will, whether you want to or not. One day, you won't be able to deny who he is. And it's too late. That's the true status, the true prestige, the true honor that Jesus owns and deserves. But then he just turns it around and he says, there's still a rot here, there's still a problem. He turns it around and he says to his audience, but making sure the scribes can still hear every word, he says, beware the scribes. He says from verse 46, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, and they love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. They devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. He's again, he's just showing them that they're full of hot air. They're only out to gain prestige for themselves, not for God. They're making assumptions of their position and their status. They're thinking too highly of themselves and they're trying to acquire and keep something that they don't deserve and something that he deserves instead. He lists, he even lists what they're doing just to prove a point. He says they walk around in long robes. These are big flamboyant, nicely decorated robes that are just indicated immediately wealth and achievement. It's not, you know, look at, look at the king of kings, the one I serve. It's not that, it's look at me, isn't it? Look at me. And he says they love the best seats at religious and social gatherings and all that. They're calling shotgun on the choice seats. It's an indication of pride again. The best seats are front and centre, aren't they? When, uh, when Jenny and Amy and myself, we were uh, in the States a few years ago, we had, we had the privilege of visiting the, um, the Hearst Castle over on the West Coast. We, um, William Randolph Hearst was a massive uh, publishing magnate, uh, one of the richest men on the planet at the time, 100 years ago. And he... Um, he built this castle right on the coast, and it's a, it's a ridiculous, ostentatious, huge, great thing. It's got, it's got, the guests have stayed in huge, great villas that are called cottages. There's just all surrounding this castle, and there's these pools, and it's just, it's just bonkers, absolutely bonkers. Charlie Chaplin was there, staying regularly, the Marx Brothers, and uh, uh, Winston Churchill was there. Johnny Weismuller, the old black and white um, Tarzan, he was also an Olympic um, swimmer. He used to give people give guests swimming lessons in the pools and stuff like that. And on a constant rotation, there were these people always, there were always really famous Hollywood and political guests um, there. And he had this, he, we saw it, there's this huge dinner table, I can't remember how many seats, 30 or 40 or something, huge great dinner table. And uh, Hurst and his girlfriend, Marion Davis, would always sit in the middle. And depending on where you were placed, gave an indication of your prestige. And the closer you were to them in the middle... Ah, top dog tonight. But the longer you stayed, the more you got edged each night to the edge of the dining table until you finally got the hint, it's like maybe it's time for us to go. And people got edged further and further to the far end. And 
There's, these are the choice seats. These are the kind of things the scribes like to make sure they could keep hold of. I want to make sure I get in the middle again tonight. It's what they're doing time and time again. Again, it's not looking at, look at the God I serve. It's look at me, look where I'm sitting. What does that tell you about me? They're loving it, they're lapping it up. But I mean, that's one thing. But then Jesus says, it gets even worse. He said they devoured widows' houses. Now, no further details are given there, but that sounds pretty sick. It sounds like some big old scam going on, doesn't it? They're wheedling their way into vulnerable women's tragic situations and they're hoovering up whatever they can get their grubby little hands on. It's pretty, you feel it in the pit of your stomach. Who who do these people think they are? It's horrible. And then he finishes the saying that they make these long, pretentious prayers as well. Again, this is not, that's not focusing attention on the one they're supposed to be praying to. It's focusing attention on them. Listen to how well I pray. Listen to the long words I use, all that. And so, while Jesus has been spelling out the prestige that is rightfully his, in the most <laughs> humble and eventually sacrificial way, he's always giving this God. He's amazing. All the time, these scribes, they're just trying to dictate um, and snatch and steal something that, that is not rightfully theirs in the first place. And so Jesus, in the last line of this final verse here, Jesus, the one who ultimately sits in the judgment seat, he says the greater condemn- condemnation will be coming their way. Now, many of us, when we were thinking, I'm not a church, many of us, you know, I'm not a church leader, let alone I'm a church leader, but I don't act like that or whatever. It's easier for us to go, oh, Waggle our fingers at them. Ah, oh, terrible. Aren't they naughty? But there's always a lesson for us all here, isn't there? Just to be sure the Holy Spirit just to speak to us. We, we may not be lording it about in flamboyant church leader uniforms, or we may not be trying to nab the best seats. And hopefully we're definitely not scamming widows. I'll eyeball you. Stop it. Um, but we are all still in danger of putting ourselves in the judgment seat sometimes, thinking that we're better than we are, or flipping it and thinking we're worse than he even sees us, because we're comparing ourselves with someone else, or that kind of thing. We, do that. we put ourselves in the judgment seat every time we read scripture and think we know better than what he says. We, we are in danger of doing that, aren't we? We do it every time we ignore clear commands in the scripture, or even healthy advice, because we're otherwise then going, well, nah, my way's better, or my way's preferable, or my life's quite comfortable, I'd rather not, thanks, I'll ignore that. We do it, don't we? We do it. Who the heck are we to do it? But we do it. And so all of this, looking at the scribes, shaking our heads at them, we just need, still need to, be, need to understand there is, a, there is a root, there's a splinter of something in their hearts that would still exist in ours. This affects how we conduct ourselves, how self-seeking we are or not or how resentful we get about the fact that we're, we're not getting the applause or the affirmation or the best seats that we'd prefer. Sometimes we get resentful about it. How come they always get that and I don't? Suddenly that sits there. That festers, doesn't it? That's not to say we don't honour people, we don't give thanks publicly and in open gratitude for people's service and so on. We, we, of course we do that. But that's not inflating someone's ego, hopefully. That's just gratitude. You know, there's a place for that. Of course there is. But we can all be, these three things, we can all be in danger of either wrongfully over-calculating our own worth. Do you not know who I am? You know, all that kind of thing. Did you not take note of what I did? I've had people coming up to me before. Oh, you think that person, you didn't thank me because I did this. It's like, 
I think maybe it proves that's why I probably shouldn't have. Do you know what I mean? Thank you, but there's something going on in the heart there. Sometimes we can overcalculate our own worth. But also, like I say, there is also a danger of putting ourselves down, of comparing ourselves with other people and demeaning ourselves. I'm not as clever or as able or as positioned or as gifted as that person. Jesus still thinks you're brilliant. Don't put yourself down. Jesus still has purposes for you planned out. And we've all got different places in the church. Don't put yourself down. See yourself through Jesus' eyes. Otherwise, you're still not doing what he wants you to do. He loves you big time. But also, and this still happens in the church, we can ascribe too much worth to other people. We can elevate them in an unhelpful way when there is only one who should be receiving ultimately any kind of glory, and that's Jesus. This is a common downfall for some churches, some church leaders, where church leaders get a platform and people, people do inflate it. People do go flocking when a certain preacher is preaching. It's like, well, I, think I get it, but... It's a bit, a bit uneasy as well about it. Um, some church leaders, pastors, worship leaders, sometimes when their platform and their prestige gets bigger, it becomes a heart issue, and we can be part of the problem as well as them. We can't just go, oh, they shouldn't be feeling like that about that and getting their ego inflated. Sometimes we can be helping the problem, can't we? The bigger the platform, the bigger the danger, isn't it? My hat does go off to pastors like John Piper and Tim Keller who have these big, large, global platforms, but they do remain incredibly humble, humble and incredibly gracious. We all need a slice of that. But Beacon Church isn't my church. Not my church. Not David's church. Not Bob's church. Not our church. Jesus' church. That should always be the case. While we're leaders, we're not... We're not lording it over the church. We're here to serve you. Jesus served. Live like him. It's not our church. It's his. It's always his. I was going to finish now. We're, we're not going to wrap up early. We'll want time for other things later on as well. But I just think, just to finish with a couple of questions. Firstly, who do you proclaim Jesus to be? Do you proclaim him to be the eternal, never-began, glorious King of Kings? Or do you not know? I'm not even sure if he existed. If he did, I'm not sure if he was God. I'm not sure what it was like. I'm not sure how much of this is real. Come and ask us. We'd love to talk to you about it. Who do you proclaim Jesus to be? And are you giving him all the glory he deserves because of who he is? But then also, within that, we need to ask ourselves, who do you proclaim yourself to be? Because remember that these scribes, they were the intellectual experts, they were the academics of the faith kind of thing. They were supposed to know their stuff. But they lauded about their status as respected leaders of the community, all flamboyantly. But they couldn't even reply to basic foundational questions about the God they claimed to believe in. He shut them up. It's all smoke and mirrors. It's all hot air. And so for all of us, just need to ask sometimes, regardless of our role in the church, forget how much head knowledge you have, how, much, how many gifts, what gifts you have, whatever your leadership responsibility is or isn't, whatever it, all of that. But all of us just need to ask, how much of my professed faith is just hot air? Because it comes real by living it out loud. We can give it all that sometimes, but 
That's Sundays, and Monday to Saturday looks a bit different sometimes, doesn't it? About not just being lip service, but it's about our hearts and our hands and our feet caught up in glorifying Jesus in everything we do. Amen? It becomes deep and it becomes rich in recognizing the one who is right in front of us all along, the author of all things, and recognizing him and applauding him for who he is, getting to truly know him and giving giving him the honor that he deserves. That's what the Christian life is all about. There's a reason why Christ is the first part of that word. (laughs) It's all about him, right? And that is where we find fulfillment, and that is the oxygen that we all need. Let me just pray. Jesus, we proclaim you as the living king. We love you, Lord. We thank you not just for what you do, but for who you are. Your grace and your goodness and your kindness and your mercy are everlasting. Your your mercies are new every morning. No matter who we are and what we've done, your forgiveness is always there ready and waiting, ready to receive us and bless us and help us grow and help us change to become more like you. You've made that possible through the cross, through your resurrection. You made it possible that we can step into a new life of not li- no longer living for ourselves, but living for you. Help us to step into that all the more. Help us, even this morning as we sing some more songs in a minute, Lord, help us just to see Well, you just have a greater glimpse of your majesty, a greater glimpse of your power, a greater glimpse of your love, your sacrifice, your goodness, your beauty. Let this faith be not just some lip service, some token gesture that we affiliate with, but let it be the beating heart of our lives that is always yearning to find ways to bring glory to you. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Over to you guys.